There's a familiar saying which is credited to the poet Ralph Waldo Emerson, and one variation goes like this, that it's not the destination but the journey that matters. You probably heard that. You maybe even shared that bit of wisdom with someone. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's true that it's not the destination but the journey that matters. But what if your destination is incredible compared to the journey getting there? How does having an amazing destination to look forward to impact your attitude while on the journey? Here's an example. Let's say you are on your way to Hawaii for an all-expenses-paid month-long vacation. How would knowing where you are going affect your attitude on the plane ride getting over there? Well, I think for most of us, it's highly likely that we're going to have a pretty outstanding attitude on the plane trip. Believers have a destination that is beyond description. It's more wonderful than anything we have ever experienced or can imagine. And we're told to keep that destination in mind while we are on the journey of this life. It will have a profound impact on how we face our difficulties in this life. So considering that, we might say then, it's not the journey, but the destination that matters. By way of review, as we get into our Bible study this morning, we got about halfway through Romans 8 last time, which is a favorite chapter for many Bible readers. Sitting right in the middle of the letter, Romans 8 is the heart of the letter, both literally and figuratively. Within this chapter are stated in beautiful terms some of the most important and beloved truths of the Christian faith. Well, we left off in our study reading about the amazing relationship with God that the Holy Spirit creates for those who have received salvation through Jesus Christ. We are given an intimate personal relationship with God as His precious sons and daughters. We're told in verse 15 that by the Holy Spirit we now cry, Abba, Father. Well, this is the same kind of relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. He called Him Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that a child used in those days to address their father. It, it's it's kind of like the English words daddy and papa. It is a word that conveys a close, personal, trusting relationship. We now have a relationship with God as our loving, generous, kind, strong, wise, safe father. Now, you may have had a great human father, and again, you may have had a not-so-good human father. Maybe you grew up without having your father present at all in your life. Whatever the situation that you may have had with your human father, it's important that we not allow any negative experiences that we have had color our understanding of the kind of father that God is. He's the best father we can imagine having. He's always present. He always has time for us. He always has our best 
interests in mind. He is generous. He is wise. He is safe. He can be trusted. Well, we want to pick up right there this morning in our Bible study. So Romans 8, beginning in verse 15, uh, which is where we, we read last week, but we want to read that again today as we, to, to get the flow of where we're going today. So Romans 8, 15, it says, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Being God's children means we are also heirs of our Father, God, and being children of God also means that we are brothers and sisters of our Father's greater Son, Jesus, and co-heirs with Him. So imagine that. We are heirs of our Father and co-heirs of our brother, Jesus. We now share in everything that Jesus has. We're not even sure what all that includes, but it is far more amazing than all that this world has to offer many times over. The poorest and most destitute believer is wealthier than the wealthiest of this world. Now, the second part of verse 17, it brings a bit of sobriety to the party, though, doesn't it? It says, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus, our brother, he faced a tremendous amount of suffering in his life, being tortured and crucified. We're told many times in the New Testament that followers of Jesus can also expect to suffer. Jesus himself said in John 15, 18 to his disciples, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Uh, Peter, he writes over in 1 Peter 4, 12. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Now, we might be tempted to ask if the suffering and difficulty and hardship that we face in this life is worth it. Is the journey worth the destination? Well, Paul answers that question in the next verse, in verse 18. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's not the journey, but the destination that matters is what he says. There's no comparison 
between our present sufferings, no matter what they might be and the glory that will be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul wrote this, he said, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul calls our troubles in this life light and momentary in comparison to the eternal glory that's coming. These troubles are for only a short time. I know they can feel like they are going on and on with no end in sight. But in comparison to where we're going and what we are becoming, they are light and momentary. Now, Paul, he was not just some optimistic dreamer talking a bunch of empty nonsense when he wrote this. He had firsthand experience with suffering for being a Christian. Among the many things he endured, he was scorned, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was flogged, he was imprisoned, he was stoned and left for dead, all for being a follower of Jesus Christ. That is all in addition to the suffering and pain that he undoubtedly faced that comes along with just living in this world. And he said, none of that was worth comparing to the glory that is coming. He said in the next verse of 2 Corinthians 4.18, he said, So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul tells us to focus our attention on the coming glory rather than the troubles that assault us now. Our difficulties in this life are temporary. The glory awaiting us is eternal. Christian, we have a rich, full, amazing future to look forward to beyond all of the troubles of this life. Let's remember that when we are getting our teeth kicked in. Let's keep our destination in mind while we are on this journey. This glory that will be revealed in us, it must be incredible because the rest of the creation eagerly waits for it to come too. Look at the next verses, verse 19. It says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The whole creation is waiting in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed, it says in verse 19. It's as if all of nature is leaning forward, hanging over the railing with intense interest and desire for that moment when the glory of the children of God will burst forth. When humanity fell, it broke everything, including what the rest of the creation once was. The creation has been subjected to frustration or to futility, verse 20, prevented from being all that it is intended to be having to suffer along with fallen humanity and under the tyranny of fallen humanity, suffering under the bondage of decay 
the spoiling, the wasting, the corrupting, the destructing of this fallen world. This is a suffering, hurting, mangled world that we live in. We, the human race, have made a mess of ourselves and a mess of this world. God chose to have the rest of the creation suffer with us under the devastation brought about by our sin. But the day is coming when the creation will enjoy along with us the redemption that's coming, when it will be brought into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, verse 21, it says. At present, the creation groans as going through the pains of labor, waiting for that moment when the new will come. Now, can you imagine what this new, redeemed, liberated creation will be like? I mean, there are places and things in this sin-damaged creation that take our breath away with their beauty and wonder. What's coming will exceed even the most beautiful and wonderful of this present world. There will be no more death or decay or violence. Instead, there will be life and vigor and joy. Now, you may be wondering what is meant by the creation. Does it mean all of the universe? Or our solar system, our planet, or some other subset of the universe? The answer is, we don't know. We know that it includes all of the creation that was and is affected by the sin of humanity. That's what it includes. Whatever was damaged and twisted by our fall and our sin will be redeemed and put back right by God as a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. What's coming is a wonderful, unspoiled creation. <clears throat> 23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So not only does the rest of the creation groan, but we do too. Now that we have the first fruits of the Spirit, those of us who are believers, the, the new life has sprung up in us. Those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And this first taste of the new life that is coming, it fills us with anticipation and with longing. We have had our sin forgiven and we've been given a new life with a new future. Our spirit is alive after having been dead and we're being changed even now to be more and more like Jesus. We have a new hope that gives us strength and peace in the midst of a hopeless world. And it's not just the transformation of our spirit that we're looking forward to. It also includes our body being changed. We're going to receive a resurrected body like the resurrected body of Jesus a body that is not broken and damaged by sin and disease and decay. It will be a new body free from all of that, full of a new kind of life and abilities perfectly suited for our new spiritual life and this new unspoiled creation that's coming. For in this hope we were saved but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes 
for what they already have. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We look forward in hope for what's coming. We're trusting in the promises of our great God and Savior to complete the good work that He started. Verse 26 says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So looking forward to the amazing future that's coming gives us strength to face the difficulties in this life. And while we are living in this life, it tells us here that the Holy Spirit helps us in our praying, in our crying out to our Abba Father. We've all experienced times in our life when we feel the need to pray, our hearts are crying out for our Father's help in some way, but coherent thoughts and words fail us. Maybe a storm of fear and Worry is swirling inside of us so intensely that we can't quiet our mind to think clear enough to pray with words. Maybe we're trying to pray for someone else, but the situation is so messy and confusing, so complicated, so full of pain and heartbreak, so scary, so overwhelmingly huge that we don't know what to pray. Maybe we are a blathering fool, throwing an endless stream of words up to heaven, but none of it's making any sense. We're just talking. Our mouth is in a runaway mode, and it's left our mind back there somewhere. Well, whatever the cause, whatever the breakdown, no, no matter what the reason, we never need to feel that we can't pray because we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, stepping into the gap between our Abba Father and ourself. The Holy Spirit who searches our heart, knowing us better than we know ourselves, He also fully understands the will of God and so intercedes to perfectly align our prayers with God's will. What a tremendous encouragement for us to pray. We're, we're not alone in our efforts to pray. We have the Holy Spirit with us, helping us always, so never hesitate to pray. Rightly did Jesus call the Holy Spirit the helper, the advocate, the counselor, the comforter. That is who he is for us. Verse 28 is this favorite Bible verse for many believers. Many of us remind ourselves of the truth expressed in this verse when we face difficulties. It says in verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. The promise expressed in this verse, it transforms the way that we see the circumstances of our life. Our life as a believer, as a child of God, is not a bunch of random events without meaning and purpose being tossed and back and forth by chance. Instead, our life, although it can appear random and without meaning, is always under the sovereign hand of our Heavenly Father 
who is at work in everything so that the outcome is always ultimately for the good. The good being talked about here, it's not always something that's apparent to us in the moment, is it? In fact, it might look really bad and cause one to ask, how can anything good possibly come from this terrible thing? The good is something that we take hold of by faith. It's something that we take hold of by faith, trusting in our Father's purpose, His plan and will for us. It says those who love God. Those who love God are those who trust God. And what's this purpose that God has called us to? That question is answered in the next couple of verses. That purpose is for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. God uses everything that happens in our life for this grand purpose of making us like Jesus. This is the good He's working all things toward. Unless we love God, this is not a purpose that we're going to care much about, though. But if we love God, this is a purpose that we long for, to be like Jesus. Verse 29 and 30 says, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Now, the key to understanding these verses is to remember that the same people are being referred to throughout. These verses are talking to believers about believers. These verses were not written with the intent of identifying who's saved and who's not saved. That's a question being superimposed on these verses by people's theological models. If that is one of your personal interest areas, you can pursue that discussion at another time with others who share that interest with you. We're better served today by seeing these verses being spoken in their context. They're being spoken to believers as a description of what God has done in bringing about His good purpose for us. It says, for those God foreknew, the Lord set his love on us before the beginning of time. He also predestined. The Lord has had a plan and a purpose for us before the beginning of time. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The Lord's purpose for us is to make us like his son, Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn among many who would be children of God. And those He predestined, He also called. The Lord has spoken to us to come. He's invited us to be part of His purpose for us. Those He called, He also justified. The Lord has done for us what what we could never do for ourselves in order for us to be conformed to this purpose, to be Conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He has removed our guilt and made us righteous. He has justified us. He has given us salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done. 
Those he justified, he also glorified. The Lord has justified us with the purpose of glorifying us. The Lord didn't intend to simply rescue us from sin and death, but to glorify us, conforming us to the image of his son and making us his children. This brings us back to what we were talking about in those earlier verses, in verses 18 through 25. Our glorification is the completion of our becoming like Jesus Christ as he is now in his glorified state. And how are we to respond to all of this? The final verses of Romans 8 are the most amazing declaration of God's love for us in all of the Bible. Christian, these words that we are about to read, you can take to the bank. A good bank, not a failed bank. Stick these words on your refrigerator. Put these words in your wallet. Whatever you do, don't forget these words. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, Christian, I want to say you are destined for glory. You are destined for glory. And God has done everything to ensure that is a certainty. Remember your destination while on this journey. Let it give you peace and joy and courage in the midst of this life's circumstances. Amen. Amen. And let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing promises that you have made, the, the incredible things you have done for us, Lord.
We're your children. And we're headed for glory. We, we don't even fully understand what that even means yet, Lord, but to imagine that the whole creation is waiting in eager expectation to see it. And we're part of that. Lord, lift the hearts and the spirits of your people today. Fill them with anticipation and, and joy, Lord. May the destination give us a newfound joy and peace and strength on our journey. In Jesus' name. Amen.